Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, April 23rd. For those of you who have been following along with our Mini Breaks all week long, you will know just how much news has come out of the professional tennis world this week. Things such as the details for the Player Relief Fund finally starting to emerge, the ITF forming a player council to expand the representation of lower-ranked players in the decisions being made in the professional tennis world. Of course, there is also the Novak Djokovic vaccine story, uh, but today, a story to top them all. Roger Federer coming out this morning, I believe it was at something like 7.28 a.m. Eastern Time, and tweeting the following, Just wondering, am I the only one thinking that now is the time for men's and women's tennis to be united and come together as one? And what this is a reference to is what we found out on Wednesday. There have been ongoing discussions between the ATP and WTA tours about merging and forming one formalized professional tennis tour that schedules, that represents, that, you know, handles all of the business of professional tennis. And that would be monumental news. Certainly, we expected changes to come out uh, or to be uh, experienced in professional tennis following this coronavirus pandemic. All of us are going to experience changes, whether we're professional tennis players or not. But this would be a monumental one, and it's the sort of news that deserves its own podcast. So that's exactly what we did here at Cracked Rackets. Mark Lucero, our friend, coach of Nicole Gibbs and Steve Johnson, noted uh, analyst for Tennis Channel, a guy we have had on multiple Cracked Rackets podcasts, agreed to come on an emergency edition of the Great Shot podcast. Him and I talked about the news, all of the different moving variables that are associated with it, the pros and cons of one merged tour, how likely we think it is to happen. We talked about all of it on a Great Shot podcast that you can go find on that Great Shot podcast feed wherever you listen to your podcast. So I am not going to cover that topic again here today, but know that we devoted, I think it's about 45 minutes to it. So rest assured, we are quite aware of how big of a topic that will be. That being said as well, you may have noticed if you were following along in our mini breaks that we skipped this week's edition of Technique Tuesday. There was just some scheduling things between us and the My Tennis HQ guys, not in a negative connotation, just sometimes things don't work out. You can't all record Monday night. And so we had to push that this week, but we didn't want to leave you all hanging dry. There are still ways you can improve your serve, ways to think about your own tennis game that deserve to be discussed. And of course, we always enjoy doing that with the My Tennis HQ guys, Austin Rapp of My Tennis HQ, the former UCLA All-American top 600 ATP pro in singles, top 400 in doubles joins me today to talk a little bit about serving and volleying. Before we get to that,
that discussion, I have to let you guys know that these podcasts are made every day by our friends, made possible every day, I should say, by our friends at Diadem Sports. And if you watch any of our Cracked Rackets content, you go to YouTube.com. You subscribe to our Cracked Rackets channel so you won't miss anything moving forward. You will see for at least the past, what, 10, 11 episodes of things we've done, I wear my Diadem hoodie. And yes, there are sponsors, so of course I want to make them proud. But it's because that hoodie is that comfortable, and everything Diadem does is helping tennis players across the globe elevate their games by designing the most innovative performance tennis gear on the planet. It's all designed with your performance in mind. Each of their rackets carefully crafted for specific types of playing styles. Whether your game commands power and explosiveness, precision and control, they'll have the best option to help you take your game to the next level. And again, it's five different sets of strings. It's the two rackets. It's all of their hooded sweatshirts, their gear, their premier tennis balls, their drawstring bags, anything you could need tennis equipment-wise, they've got it. And the way you can go support them, go to diademsports.com. Use our promo code CR50 and you'll get 50% off your order. Again, you're going to find everything you need all in one location. So go to diademsports.com. Use that promo code CR50. They continue to support us. The least we can do is ask you listeners to go support them. Now, again, before I get to that conversation with Austin Rapp, I do want to run through a couple of other storylines because I don't want to leave you guys hanging. Uh, we talked earlier this week about you know how unfortunate it was for Tennis Canada given the $17 million financial loss they've expected with no Rogers Cup. It meant job losses and pay cuts. And Arash Madani uh, went uh, in-depth on Sportsnet.ca to talk about the long-term impact of this financial loss on the next generation of players. And he talks to CEO Michael Downey of Tennis Canada for this piece. And look, uh, you know, it's not great. Uh, They talk about it. You know, it's another national governing body of tennis that's feeling the economic impact. You know, sources say nearly 50 people had their jobs terminated on Monday, while another three dozen were laid off with the intent to bring them back in the fall, hopefully And the organization is now down to approximately 35 staff members who have accepted a reduction in salary. Uh, CEO Michael Downey said, look, we had no choice. When you have these kinds of staggering losses, you have to act like a business and you have to make change. We had to streamline our employee base. That's unfortunately what we had to do. And he had he said, look, it's so deep that every area of our place will be touched one way or another. And I don't want to give away the entire premise of the piece, the details he gets into, uh, you know, how Tennis Canada plans to generate revenue in the meantime, uh, where their sources of revenue come from. Because, again, you should all go read the piece from Arash Madani, Bracing for No Rogers Cup, Tennis Canada Cuts Go Deep. You can find that again on sportsnet.ca. But it speaks to the financial impact on a granular level. It's local coaches, local clubs, local businesses, and then at a larger level as well, you know, entire federations and all of these players, of course, who are feeling the impact of this coronavirus and the financial implications continue to become more and more clear. And they're certainly scary for so many of us tennis fans. Again, adjustments are going to be made. There will be changes to professional tennis out of necessity as much as out of, you know, making the sport a better place as well. Uh, So that's one story. There's also, you know, maybe slightly we're working our way up to better and better news. Uh, The USTA today issued a statement on playing tennis safely. I'm reading a synopsis now from Colette Lewis's Tennis Kalamazoo uh, blog, which the USTA recognizes that the coronavirus has been 
affecting different parts of the country in different ways with different timing. We therefore believe it will be possible for people to return to playing tennis safely in some cities and states sooner than in others while they talk about uh, following local guidelines in terms of whether it's safe to play tennis in your community or not. They offer some ways to make sure if you are able to play tennis in your community that you do it in a safe way, in a way that ensures that you and the people you are playing with uh, don't put yourselves at risk just to enjoy a sport we all love. And, you know, they talk about guidelines, whether you should not shouldn't play, but they talk about preparing to play and protections you can have against infections, washing your hands, washing equipment, bringing a water bottle to avoid touching, you know, tap or water fountain handles, using new balls and a new grip, you know, maybe even wear gloves if you need to avoid touching the court gates, the fences, the benches. And then with playing, things you can do with the person you're playing with, whether it's separate balls, whether it's, you know, try not to share drinks, try not to share towels, some of the obvious stuff as well. Maybe avoid changing ends if it's not, you know, if you guys can, because, you know, if you can't play with the sun in your face, it, I promise you the sun is not going to ruin your tennis experience. And then, you know, talking about after you play, what you should do, how many balls you should use. It's a really helpful set of guidelines. So again, I, I think it's really, uh, it's it's good work by the USTA to put that out there to show that they have safe, they want, you know, all of tennis players out there. It shows we're one community and we all want all of us, not just in the tennis community, of course, but in the tennis community to stay safe and healthy. So, hey, great shot to you, USTA, for those guidelines. Another piece of news that I found through the uh, Tennis Kalamazoo blog as well as just on Tennis Twitter today, uh, Paul Jubb announcing through the LTA, that's of course the British Tennis Association, that he's going to be going pro. And of course, he was a senior this year. He was uh, someone who would have been one of the more monumental uh person people to return if they chose to do that to South Carolina next season he of course is still 21 years old so fairly young and if he would have returned it wouldn't have shocked anyone but He's one of the players that have been selected for the LTA's Pro Scholarship Program. For those of you who are asking what is the Pro Scholarship Program, I'm happy to tell you because I have that piece of information available for me right now. Uh, But in general, what this scholarship does is it helps players who the LTA has uh, dignified as people, you know, the highest level of support offered for developing players by the national governing body. It provides access to world-class coaching, science, and medicine support from the LTA performance team. As well as financial support up to 80,000 euros for players aged between 16 and 24 with genuine potential to reach the ATP WTA top 100 in five years. It's essentially, you know, their uh, uh, development program, a high level training. I, I don't remember exactly that. I'm blanking out on the USTA uh, player development program. I think it's just called the player development program. This is that for the LTA. Uh, so, you know, Paul Jubb has always been an exceptional talent, and you can understand why. With all due respect, sometimes it's as simple as if the money's there, the resources are there, you take advantage of it, you turn pro. And if you were Paul Jubb, I think we can all agree having that sort of support this early in your career, you take it and you go pro. With all due respect to the South Carolina program, he's an NCAA singles champion. He's done what he came to do in college, and he's a player who's ready to go experience the professional circuit. So congratulations to him, and that's a career we look forward to monitoring whenever we get back to professional tennis. Again, from here, it's all good news moving forward. Andy Murray was on CNN today, and he sounds optimistic about being 
uh, fit to play on the clay in September, uh, but he's pessimistic about the French Open being able to go ahead. Uh, he expects, like many, tennis to be one of the last sports to get back to normality. Uh, now, you know, again, there's two bit, bits of news there, I suppose. I don't think anyone's surprised that, you know, tennis is still in question if at all we're going to come back this season. But it's great news to th- hear that Andy Murray, you know, is getting healthy and getting to a place physically and mentally where he can go back on the court and perform professionally because we all benefit when Andy Murray is a part of the professional tennis world. Again, all good things here on the way to uh, out of this new segment, and then we will get to, of course, my uh, our interview uh, with my tennis HQ. But Riley Opelka donates 500 masks to Palm uh, Coast. That, of course, is his hometown city. Have to love that. That's awesome. You can read that story on Baseline.Tennis.com. Another good one, Brandon Nakashima, the local San Diego Diego native in partnership with the San Diego Aviators of the World Team Tennis Organization, uh, was at the Bread and Cheese Eatery to provide dinner to their local Scripps Memorial Hospital in Sanitas. I think that's the name of the hospital. Uh, So, you know, again, shout out to Brandon for taking a role in the community, doing what he can to help. And then the coolest thing I read today on the field it's on scroll.in the story behind at double fault 28 one of the most popular accounts on tennis twitter uh, and obviously double fault 28 is someone we all know well the story was written by Zinea uh, did did Kunha. I apologize if I butcher that it's at z-e-n-i-a-d-c-u-n-h-a and to learn more about Alex, uh, who I've gotten to talk to a little bit through the TMs, but whose work I have obviously so greatly appreciated throughout my time on tennis Twitter, just as a tennis fan, his gifts are the best in the business. Uh, to learn more about him was really cool, so everyone should go check that out uh, because that's just a really cool piece. But another thing you all are looking forward to checking out, I am sure, my conversation with my Tennis HQ's Austin Rap on serving and volleying. Let's get to that right after this commercial break. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining me for this week's edition of Technique Tuesday on a Thursday, you of course know him as a former American at UCLA, one of the few guys out there, I'll say, with a top 600 ranking in singles and top 400 ranking in doubles, and of course, one of the co-founders of My Tennis HQ, Austin Rapp. Austin, how are you doing? Good. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on again. It is always a pleasure. I apologize to you that our schedules got mixed up. It, it It was bound to happen eventually, right? Yeah, it was bound to happen, especially now uh, everyone's losing track of the days. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was definitely bound to happen. Yeah, honestly, some people might see the podcast and be confused. They'll be like, wait, it's not Tuesday. And then they there will be like a moment of doubt. And then they'll be like, no, 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 it's not 
Tuesday because I, I agree with you. I think we've all experienced that. Um, but of course, we are always so thrilled to have you on to do this each and every week. And we're excited to continue to be partnered with you guys at My Tennis HQ. Before we get into this week's article, I have noticed that you guys are still up to all sorts of cool things. In particular, the interviews have got caught my eye because you guys have had some great people on as of late, people like Bradley Klon and Alex Rybakov, JC Aragoni, and so many more. Uh, how would you say the college interview series is going thus far? We're really happy with it. Um, I think everyone that we reached out to has, has put in uh, some, some good effort into their answers, and that's what we were kind of looking for. Uh, we didn't want just the generic, oh, yeah, you know, college is great, it made me better. Uh, we wanted some specifics on, on why they liked it, and we're, we're seeing a good range of players. You know, it's not all top 100 guys. It's some top 100 guys, some from 1 to 300, some outside the top 500, and uh, I think that's what we were going for because we wanted to show that college tennis is it, – it can be a good option for almost everyone, you know? No, absolutely. And I think something I've noticed from the themes of reading the articles is so many of these players talk about how important their coaches were to them. And I'm curious just to follow up with you. Obviously, you played college tennis. How important is it to find a coach that you're comfortable with, that you mesh with well? It's probably the most important thing because, um, you know, barring a coach leaving or something like that, uh, those guys are going to be with you all four years and, and teammates are going to come and go, you know, if, if they graduate or, or whatever, you're only going to be on the team with a few guys all four years. Um, so coaches, college coaches give a lot more than just tennis. It's uh, helping you with um, grades and time management and staying on top of your, your stuff, you know, all through, all through your four years. So it's definitely important. It's something that recruits need to, look heavily into when they're going through this process without question now to you true or false billy martin is the best travel companion true of course i've heard the man is just a machine going through airports he just has it down yeah of course he has it down he he's uh (laughs) he gets a little nervous on on flights so you gotta always give up the aisle row for him but uh Yeah, no, I say this respectfully. He seems like a two scotches and then he's asleep type of guy. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's true or false, but I could see it. I'm not going to confirm or deny, but uh, yeah, you're... <laughs> <laughs> We'll say I'm on to something. Uh, yeah, no, that that uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And again, that's just part of the aura of Billy Martin. But, of course, the reason we wanted to have you on today, not only will I ask you about the 2013 NCAA championship for the upteenth time, but, of course, we want to go through our Technique Tuesday, talk about our My Tennis HQ article of the week that we are featuring on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, you can find all of the great My Tennis HQ articles each and every week, as well as those interviews on My tennishq.com but today we're talking serving volleying and that is a topic near and dear to my heart right now because i've been doing a deep dive into 90s tennis late 80s tennis as well and there's a lot of serving and volleying now obviously you know serving and volleying has diminished in terms of the frequency you see it on either tour it's almost completely extinct in the both the women's and the men's game uh, but that is not always the case and your article again titled how to 
serve and volley effectively isn't about making the case that players should switch back to those tactics routinely, but about the effectiveness of utilizing the serve and volley play. Uh, you, you give an anecdote at the beginning about your relationship with serving and volleying. Why was this an, a topic that you found interesting? Yeah, I mean, it was important for my game development-wise because when I was in high school, um, I had a big serve. It was one of my bigger weapons. wasn't too comfortable coming in, but it just learning how to use that every once in a while made my life a lot easier. Um, you know, obviously for a lot of reasons, but I think the main one is it just gives it gives that extra element of the returner not knowing what the hell is about to happen next. You know. Uh, it, it, anyone can or not anyone but a lot of guys can hit the ball big and s- serve it huge but it's all about what you do on the first ball so the returner is thinking oh i have to put this on the feet i have to hit it deep whatever it is then then that causes a lot of problems i asked this respectfully were you a late bloomer in terms of you grew later in life because i feel like you were always a tall kid so you must have had that big serve for a while I was always pretty tall. I think in, in high school, I like my early years in high school, I grew and, um, but yeah, I I wasn't, I wasn't ever short. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Sure. Well, the reason I asked the question one, obviously I'm just trying to learn more about you. We've done this now five or six times and I don't even know when you hit puberty. Uh, and obviously that's a critical detail, but, um, you know, for players as they develop for me, I know when I hit my growth spurt and the serve, even even if it wasn't bigger, maybe there's a little more kick on it or I could place it more effectively and plays like that become open to you. When did, as you mentioned, serving and volleying become a part of your games and, you know, why did you start to incorporate it? Um, I don't know. My, my coach in the juniors wanted me to start it a lot earlier than I really did. Uh, <laughs> I, I threw it in every once in a while and, he finally got through to me like, dude, you have to do this if you want to take your game to the next level. And, um, I mean, I, I threw it in, uh, a little bit in the juniors, but I started doing it a little bit more actually after college and a little bit at the end of college. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely more comfortable with it now than I ever was in college or in juniors. And why do you think it's an effective play, you know, for your game? Why is it something that has grown more attractive to you? There's a few reasons. Um, I think it gives the biggest thing is it gives my serve more credibility on every point. So if I can mix in a certain volley on, uh, let's say, a 15 all or 30 15, then on that deuce point, if I'm not 100 percent comfortable with it, it's at least in the it, it's at least in the back of my opponent's mind. Right. So he gets a little bit more hesitant. He he knows that he can't just pick a big target in the middle of the court and start, you know, I think I said in the, in the start of the article, it's become such a mentality in the, in the game these days is let's get the return in and play. And if you take that mentality away from a guy that's really comfortable doing that, um, they, they just start to think a little bit, you know, Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's about adding a tool to your tool chest, right? About having another look you can throw at them, tool chest, toolbox, exactly. whatever you want to call it. Mine's exactly. a chest, yours is a box. Um, but you know, you write, being able to serve in volley even as a changeup will make it easier to hold your serve. There are a couple of elements to being effective when serving and volleying. Where and how you serve, volley placement, effective movement forward, and unpredictability. I want to start with the how you serve because, you know— it, it, 
the uh, the thinking could go the obvious thing is well I have a big serve I should serve in volley just because my serve is big I don't think that necessarily applies and in terms of the how you serve you know what is more important I mean obviously you want to hit the ball in as hard to your target as possible but when you talk about the how in a serve and volley why is that serve maybe different and how you place it how you approach it in the terms of a serving and volleying play than just a normal first serve yeah, so this is one of the things that I think a lot of juniors actually struggle with. They think because they're coming in, they have to hit the serve bigger or as big. But actually taking some pace off um, can be really beneficial just because it gives you more time to get to the net. Um, so I like using my, – I mean, my favorite opponent to uh, use the serve and volley on is, you know, one of those little grinders that stands 10 feet, <laughs> 10 feet behind the baseline – waiting for my kick serve to drop at their waist. And, you know, it's perfect for me because by the time they're making contact with the ball, I'm on top of the net, you know? It just makes it so much easier for me to, to stick a volley off the court. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I guess using, using this play is really important. It's really important to analyze the situation, you know? If, if there's a guy that's taking returns off the baseline, seeing the return really well, then it's probably not <laughs> – it's probably not the time for it. But if – you know, if the guy's just really comfortable putting it deep in the middle of the court and uh, picking a big target and just wanting to play from the baseline, then it, it could be a good thing to mix in. Yeah, we used to have a set phrasing. Again, I'll bring up my former doubles partner, a guy you know in Max Rothman, and he'd look at me and go, Alex, just throw the knuckleball, which meant, <laughs> you know, just kind of get that ball in, you know, hit your spot. It might be a little bit slower. It'll have a little bit of kick on it, uh, but we'll be on top of the net before you know it. And I do want to talk about serving and volleying in doubles at the end, but to stick with, you know, the where. In terms of telegraphing your play, and this sort of gets into effective movement forward as well, you talk about following your serve. How mm-hmm. important is the placement in the serve and volley in terms of dictating how the rest of the play goes? Um, I think when you when you serve and follow, you have to be looking a shot ahead. So if I decide to kick it wide and come in, I have to have in my head, okay, where do I want to put this first volley uh, if it comes where I want it to be, you know? Um you know, and if I serve in volley on a body serve, um, I I have to know that okay, I have to be willing to put this first volley maybe behind them or something like that. I, I go through in the article a few diagrams uh, about you know one two punches and where to put the first volley, uh, and and that's really important. It's it's one of the most important things, and it's not always uh, going to be effective to go to the open court. I think it's fascinating the way you said it. You have to think one shot ahead because it's not just, you know, where you're volleying, but it's where you're moving to is right. Well, where you're following your serve. And this is a, you know, simplistic view of it, but is it follow the ball? Is it if you're serving wide, expect the wide return? If you're serving T, you know, stay a little bit closer as a basic principle? So that's that's like a, you know, basic for any – uh, coming forward, if it's an approach or a uh, serve and volley, um, you always want to follow your ball. So if you approach line, you cover the line. If you approach cross court, you follow that ball that you hit and cover the other line. Um, it's just the way to take away a higher percentage of the court for your opponent to pass you. So if you serve wide on the deuce side, you have to get over and cover that line on the left side of your court, right? Um, because that's going to take away 
you know, you, you basically make them beat you cross. Yeah, no, absolutely. Short, short and this cross. idea, and and the idea of someone hitting a lob return winner, like if they do that, just tap your racket and say that's too good, man, because that is the hardest shot to do. I mean, given the serve, I mean, just to hit yeah. a straight up like top spin lob winner. Yeah, and usually you're going to be able to because you're you're coming forward and you're not mm-hmm. on top of the net yet. You're going to be able to pick that off pretty easily. Uh, that that mm-hmm. usually doesn't the the most. Uh, effective return against this play is right at the feet um, because mm-hmm. you have to, or low, you have to pop the volley up and the guy is kind of like a two-shot pass. So mm-hmm. the, lo- the lob is never really an issue. Yeah, and you talk about sort of rushing on, or there was one serve where you said, you know, you if the returner is 10 feet behind the baseline, you're going to be on top of the net. But in terms of the basic outline of the footwork, you know, footwork moving forward, you outline it in the piece, but just to get that on the podcast as well, it's not just race to the net as quickly as possible, right? How much ground do you want to cover before you start to, you know, slow things down and maybe, you know, be more precise with your steps? Well, this kind of goes with any movement forward, but especially on the serving volley, it's important to get uh, good, explosive two first steps out of the serve. That's kind of what carries your weight through, uh, you know, the rest of your movement. So it's hit the serve, explode out the first two steps, and then kind of let your weight guide you through the ball because you don't want to be sprinting through the volley. You want to be gliding through the volley. Um, I have a few uh, little videos on um, how one of them is Roger, of course. He does it perfectly like everything else. And then uh, one of them is Milos. And they both, it, it's its kind of a simple first two steps are big and then uh, glad through that volley. There's never really a stop. Yeah, it's more. It's more of they, a. It's more of a stutter step. It's not a. It's not a full split step stop. Come to a halt and then go again. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And they make that. You know that glide through looks so easy. They make the first uh, volley seem so effortless. But that first volley moving forward might be one of, if not the hardest volleys to hit in tennis, at least in my opinion. You mm-hmm. talked about thinking a step ahead. In terms of a basic outline, a basic plan, what should players be trying to do with that first volley? Well, it goes back to it depends on what kind of serve that they hit. So um, if the opponent's back behind the baseline real far, uh, obviously the short volley is good. If um, they're on top of the baseline and they're kind of just blocking the the return back, uh, a really good one is going behind them because I I have a few diagrams here, but – what happens a lot of the time is the returner sees you serving and volleying. They block it back to the middle and then they scramble to the middle of the court to recover and you can go behind them easily. Uh, so those, those are things to keep in mind. Yeah. Are you a guy who will hit the half volley or are you someone who will try and take the ball out of the air no matter how low it is? Uh, the goal is to take it out of the air, but sometimes it doesn't work exactly as planned. No, it never does. Yeah, I, I feel like I got really good at half volley. Oh, really good, grain of salt. Um, but you know that just was because I was not fast, and I was like, I, it was by necessity, not by skill set. Um, but yeah, I, I it, it is a tough volley, and so often, you know, if you come up there without a plan, you just find yourself lost. And when you have a return dipped at your feet, you know that is such a difficult ball to deal with. But you also talk about using the serve and volley unpredictably, and why it's you know you don't want to script 
predict your patterns beforehand. You don't want to do it on every 30 all point. You don't want to do it on every love 30 point. Um, you know, when do you think is the appropriate time to serve in volley? What, to what degree do you like to mix it in? Uh, again, it just depends on what sure. kind of guy you're playing against. So if, if, uh, if I'm playing against a five, five Argentinian guy who's standing on the back fence, I can feel pretty comfortable doing it every time until he changes something. Uh, most players, at least, you know, at the pro level or, or good college level are willing to change what they're doing and, and they're willing to recognize that. But, uh, yeah, I guess it just depends, you know, if, if the guy's not figuring it out, just keep doing it until it doesn't work. Yeah, sure. Are you someone who likes to throw in about one a game just personally? Yeah, I would, I would say, yeah, I would say one a game, especially, uh, I honestly like using it on big points. Um, it, Karu and I have talked about this before. It's one of those things where it takes the pressure off a little bit because it's such a quick point. Um, mm-hmm. Karu and I are, are both players that we don't want to, we don't want to sit in a 20 ball rally when uh, the match is on the line, uh, play to our strengths, take the ball early, uh, you know, and, and, and kind of get things done there. Don't, don't give the opponent a chance to, to come up with anything special, you know? Yeah, at first I thought the 5-5 five, five Argentinian you were talking about was Crew, but then I realized he's from Brazil. Uh, yeah. So that's, you know, that's not who you were talking about. But yeah, it's certainly, it's so much of it's opponent dependent, what's working in the moment. I'm curious for you in doubles, in terms of utilizing the servant volley, are you a purist mm-hmm. who thinks you got to serve and volley every time? I mean, certainly as the returns get better, the level is higher, you know, that becomes mm-hmm. a little bit harder. But just on principle, what's your philosophy there? Well, personally, I do. I mean, I, I have to. I feel like um, I don't want to get pinned back on the baseline uh, in doubles with, with two guys coming in. But, um, I mean, it just depends on the game style. It's, it's I guess everyone's playing a different style of doubles these days. And some guys are more effective on the baseline and pound a, pound a huge forehand and get in behind that instead of the serve. So, um, it just depends. It's not really like a one-size-fits-all uh, in doubles anymore no that's fair i feel like in terms of combating the serve and volley are you someone who will try and take the turn uh the return earlier will you take 10 you know steps back just to guarantee you get a clean look at the serve how do you uh, uh you know attack someone who is serving and volleying uh as a returner i'll, I'll take it earlier because mm-hmm. i find it easier to just block it at the guy's feet instead of you know even if you stand back and take a huge cut you know, a guy playing on the tour, he's going to have good enough hands to just bunt it to the open court. Uh, and yeah. also, as a returner, if you're way back behind the baseline, um, it's you're giving up a lot of court. Uh, so the, the volley doesn't have to be quite as good. Um, he can just kind of bunt it on the service line, and, and you're, you're not going to be there. How frustrating was it practicing with Cressy when all he was doing is serving and volleying? Well... Yeah, it was pretty frustrating. Um, <laughs> some some days you win, some days you lose, and you're not really breaking a sweat either way. Um, it was it was kind of on his racket at that at that point. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you know, in terms of practicing it, whether in match play, set play, practice, whatever it may be, how often you know you still practice throwing it in, maybe once a game, maybe twice a game. I know. As a doubles player, I mean, it was always you had to serve in volley and we'd play like no bounce doubles or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Is that the best way to learn it? Just practice. I mean, like anything, I guess, practice it relentlessly, but just throwing it in in practice sets first, then matches. Definitely. Um, it's something that's going to feel uncomfortable 
it's it's something that you have to get used to. It's the footwork. It really feels rushed right when you start doing it. So uh, you definitely have to force yourself out of that comfort zone um, to get better at it. Mm -hmm. All right. You and Keegan are playing Evan and Martin. Who's serving and volleying the least? Who gets pegged the most in that matchup? (sighs) Marty gets pegged the most. Um, (laughs) Why? I feel like he goosed around the most. He's the biggest target. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, We're definitely winning the match. There's no question about that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We would would play all the time. Marty and my senior year, we we would always play. It was always fun. I feel like for him to serve in volley, because that serve's coming off hot. I mean, it's not easy. Yeah, I mean, he's gotten better at it. He's, um, yeah, he he's one of those guys that he's not necessarily depending on how good the guys are returning. He's not serving and volleying every time, uh, especially on the on the second serve. He he's one of those guys that sometimes if the guy's really tagging the return, it's better. He's better off ripping a forehand and coming in behind that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, that no, that just goes back to reading reading the opponent and analyzing what's going on. No, for sure, that forehand is big, and you know, I, I to ask you, is there a place for serving and volley or still on serving volley or still on tour? That's a larger conversation, and why that may or may not be the case isn't something we have to get into. But <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, the servant volley as a play, and again, just something you like to turn to, uh, there there's still a place for it, right? It, it absolutely still is a skill set you should work on because in terms of helping you, it it won't just help you be a servant volleyer; it'll just help you become more aggressive and move forward right yeah i mean it forcing yourself out of that comfort zone it's not only going to help you execute the serve and volley better but it's going to make your volleys better it's going to make you place your serve better it's going to it's going to make a lot of things in your game better but to be honest with you i actually see the game you know over the next 10 15 years going back to it a little bit because i mean you look at these guys that are on the back fence uh returning and i think there's there's going to be a move towards trying to make those guys uncomfortable. You know, uh, mm-hmm. a guy like um, Team or or Rafa, Novak, not quite as much, but those guys are on the back fence, and I wouldn't want to be playing a baseline game with Team or Rafa, uh, and I don't think anyone really would be. So they're going to have to figure out ways to come forward and, and utilize that a little bit more. Uh, so yeah. I think that's something you're going to see in the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, we saw Kyrgios. We've seen him use it with success against a bunch of good players. We've seen Rafa use it in that French Open final against team. And the serve and volley is something he's worked into his game more frequently. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's something that we could absolutely see, uh, you know, certainly worked in. And then you also look at it. Half of these guys on tour who are ascending their way to the top are six four or bigger. And it's mm-hmm. like, at a certain point, why not serve and volley, right? Yeah, and, you know, you see some of the bigger guys uh, improving that part of their game. Milos is a great example of that. Uh, I think over the last five years, his movement forward has gotten quite a bit better. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's just one of them. But I, I think these bigger guys are having to figure out a way – especially on the clay if you're i don't care if you're serving 140 if nadal's on the back fence there and he's neutralizing that's not a place you want to be 
No, for sure. And I'm I'm curious again. Last question on this servant volley, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of disguising the play, because again, you don't want to give the opponent a quick read. But how does one, you know, how important is disguising the toss, disguising where you're going to go to serve when the play is going to come out of that idea of spontaneity in the servant volley play? It's important, just like any other serve. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've written a few other articles on the serve and the toss and disguise all that. Uh, and I, I think it all applies to this as well. Um, if you, if a guy knows that I'm going to kick it wide and, and come in, then it's going to be less effective, obviously. Uh, the, the more you can catch your opponent off guard with this, the better for sure. Yeah. And again, not to give away the scouting report on you, but your favorite serve and volley play for me, it's kick out wide, follow that bad boy in on the ad side. Yeah. That's my favorite too. Uh, yeah, because you I get mean, a first forehand. To, yeah, and it goes back to uh, it's slow. It gives my, you know, it, it's kicking up there, so it's a little awkward for the guy, and it's slow. I'm on top of the net, unless the guy's taking it early and getting it at my feet. It, it works a lot of the time. I swear to God, and maybe this says more about me than other, but nothing brings me more satisfaction than that kick out wide first forehand volley cross court easy winner, and you're just like, yep, that worked. You're like, yeah. I got you. That's yeah, the yeah. that's the bread and butter. That's exactly how it should be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the satisfaction you get for it all. All right, bonus question for you. All that right. being said, and this is not disrespectful, just a just an honest question. Do you find watching servant volleyers entertaining? Uh, I do because I appreciate it. I mean, crew and I had <laughs> crew, crew and I had Sampras Agassi highlights up. Uh, I think it was two thousand Australian Open. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, the guy is unbelievable to watch, of course. Uh, but the typical tennis fan, they probably want to see Rafa and team hitting 40 balls back and forth yeah. for six hours. Uh, I, I I definitely enjoy how it's worked in in different, you know, when it was everyone serving and volleying, then it gets just a little repetitive. Yeah, it gets and like, short and old. Uh, yeah. Roger mixes it in no. the most out of all the top 10 guys and, I don't know. I never get bored watching him. So yeah, but Roger also hitting a plus one forehand. The disrespect he shows his opponent to be like, you know what? I'm just going to take this on the rise down the line. And sorry, like that. Yeah. That to me is the thrill I get from him moving forward. I will agree with you. Like if I never have to watch Patrick Rafter hang another backhand slice, I'm okay with that. But watching Sampras move forward and just the disguise on his serve, that's special stuff. And like watching Johnny Mack, even even now, serve and volley, it's just some of those skills, their instincts, you get to see you know, how well they read the game. That's such an important uh, part of serving and volleying, right? Just having sort of an intrinsic sense of how a play is going to go, be able to map it out in your head. Yeah. Definitely. No, absolutely. That's important. Yeah. Sorry. That was a bit of a monologue from me. Uh, I guess no, that's no, my, no. T- that's my tennis HQ. Uh, no, that's a good take. Are... <laughs> it's, a, it's a good take. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, as always, uh, again, for our listeners, the article is called How to Serve and Volley Effectively. You can find it on MyTennisHQ.com. Austin A., what else do you guys going on? Who can I expect on the interview front moving forward? Any sneak peek you're willing to give? And for all of our listeners out there, can you remind them where they can find all of your stuff? Yeah, you can find uh, all our stuff at MyTennisHQ.com and on Instagram and YouTube at MyTennisHQ. Um, yeah, we've got some good ones coming up. Let's see. We've got like what, eight days left, nine days. Uh, we've got a few top hundred guys. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, 
I'm just going to let people go and see uh, what's going on when they come out. Oh, I like that. No teases. I appreciate it. Yeah, I someone was telling me something. We're doing a Cracked Rackets thing on May 16th. I'm not going to give away any details for that, but it was just something on the schedule for May 16th. And someone was like, yeah, so we'll get ready for that next week. And I was like, why would we get ready for that next week? That's months away. And then I was like, well, wait, no, it's like April 25th this Saturday. It's not months away. And it, yeah, I've lost track of all times and dates. So I that feel you on that it. one. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Any new uh, quarantine matches? I, I want to ask you this, and then I swear I'll let you go. Any new quarantine matches uh, that you've been watching? Uh, I guess quarantine content, old school matches that you would turn the listeners to? Uh, no, honestly, just a, a lot of highlights. Saw a Karu uh, brought it to my attention. It's like 20 minutes of Federer coming in and putting volleys away. It's pretty, pretty <laughs> gold. Um, let's see. I, I mentioned we watched... Agassi Sampras, uh, I think it was Australia t- 2000. Um, I could be wrong. I could be wrong on the year, but that was a that was a legendary match. Agassi won that one in in five. Uh, besides that, not too much. I was watching a little bit of uh, Australian Open highlights from this past year. Uh, a little bit of Monfils, a little bit of Team. I don't know. Just just trying not to go nuts and being a tennis nerd, I guess. You know, I feel you there. The underrated match from not this year, but last year's Australian Open was Medvedev Djokovic. I think it was third or fourth round. Really good match. I have been on a Leighton Hewitt. Yeah, again, I, this is just an excuse because I wanted to talk about what I've been watching. Uh, of course. I've been on a Leighton Yeah, of course. Uh, look, it's your sixth time on. You know the deal by now. Um, <laughs> I, I've been watching Leighton Hewitt matches because I just think he's this generational bridge player where you see, you know, he's not the only one. You want to say Michael Chang and Jim Courier were doing it in the late 80s, early 90s in terms of grinding from the baseline. I'll hear that argument too. But Hewitt's really the first guy who just is like, you know what? I'm going to be three to four feet behind the baseline. I'm going to track everything down. I'm still going to be a little bit aggressive in taking balls down the line and ending points early. But it's just like a fascinating, you know, dynamic for me because, you know, again, in terms of employing their styles of play, I would say Diego Schwartzman is better at doing now what Leighton Hewitt did then. It just wasn't seen before then. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do think that Leighton Hewitt, could compete and still have, you know, a high level of success today. And I can't say that about a lot of old players. Sure. Um, yeah, Hewitt's backhand is a thing of beauty. I, I really like watching him. I really like watching highlights of Hewitt. Yeah. I also have to say, I over or I underrate Andy Roddick. He was better than I give him credit for. Um, which, yeah, uh, he uh, – I, I just remember – I mean, he was my favorite player when I was little – um, I just, I just remember all, all these coaches saying, get to the net, get to the net. Uh, <laughs> but obviously just chipping every backhand and, and rolling every forehand was getting him somewhere. So, yeah, no, what I just learned is your, uh, your unwillingness, I suppose, to serve in volley early on clearly relates to your erotic fandom. It's all starting to come together to me. Um, yeah. putting the pieces there. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's making sense, but Austin, thank you so much as always for taking the time to chat again. The website is mytennishq.com where you can find all of their content. It's all so great. And of course, we're so excited to be uh, partnered with you guys, Austin, stay, ha- stay safe, stay healthy. And we'll do this again on Tuesday. Tuesday, right? Yeah, Tuesday, five-day turnaround now, so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so get right. Uh, but no, take care and stay safe. All right, you too, Alex. Thanks for having me on.
Hope you all enjoyed today's edition of Technique Tuesday on a Thursday. And of course, we here at Cracked Rackets continue to be excited about our partnership with the guys at My Tennis HQ. It's always fun for me to get to chat with Austin, to get to chat with Carew about, you know, tennis technique, get into the granular level because I'm still a lifelong tennis player and there are still things I want to learn. I want to become a better player as well. Uh, you know, physically, I think, you know, I'm sorry, Shakira, but my hips do lie. Uh, but every little detail help so shout out to them at my the guys at my tennis hq go support them by going to my tennis hq.com and again thank you to austin for taking the time to chat with us today just a couple of reminders if you have missed any of our content go to our website crackrackets.com you may not have seen this week's edition of overserved our look at all of the comedy that happens week in week out from the tennis world and of course we have continued to see these players uh, raise their profiles on social media take a attempts to be risky, be creative, and we like to have fun at their expense. We like to laugh alongside of them and sometimes laugh a little bit at them as well, but it's all in a good spirit. It's all in good fun. You can find that video on our YouTube channel. If you're listening this far in the podcast, you are likely already a subscriber, but in case you're not, you don't want to miss any additional Cracked Rackets content. You don't want to know what a diadem sweatshirt actually looks like, or you do want to know, I should say. You don't want to not know. Uh, Always a double negative thrown in there. So go sign up to our YouTube channel. Go watch CR Classics if you haven't listened to it in podcast form. And even if you had, you'll get to see highlights of the match weaved in as well. Our look at some of the best matches in tennis history. Our latest edition, Gil Gross and I break down the 0-1 Wimbledon semifinal between Andre Agassi and Patrick Rafter, their third straight year of playing at Wimbledon. And boy, was it a doozy. I promise you all will enjoy that. On the podcast front, we continue to have a really spectacular string of guests. I had Tim Russell from the ITA uh, come on the podcast yesterday on the mini break to talk about the financial impact of the coronavirus on college tennis and the way college tennis will adjust to be strong uh, moving forward. Of course, Tim has uh, locked into the details as anyone. There's no one we would rather talk to about college tennis than the ITA CEO. So really appreciated him taking the time to chat. That was a great conversation. And of course, we've been following so many news stories on the mini break. So if you've missed anything from a chaotic week, go listen through the rest of this week's episodes on the Great Shot Podcast front. As I mentioned, if you want to hear more about the potential merging of the ATP and WTA tours, go listen to the emergency podcast I did today with Mark Lucero. Uh, you know, Mark, of course, is one of the best minds, and you know he's not shy about sharing that as well, but he's always such an entertaining guest, uh, but certainly a great guy to talk to. And so we talked about the pros and cons of that merger what it might look like, how likely it is to happen. You can find that on the Great Shot podcast feed. Cracked interviews-wise, Christian, Amy Frazier, Claire Liu, Dennis Kudla, Chris Woodruff, Paul Anacone, so many more all available on that Cracked Interviews podcast feed wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to go like, rate, subscribe, review, share those podcasts with your friends. And of course, if you need the more instant updates each throughout the day, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, it's at Cracked Rackets. You can reach out to me at Great Shot Pod. We are always so appreciative of all of you who can take the time to interact with us, to offer feedback, or just, you know, want to say hello. That's always a highlight of my day. And of course, if you're looking for a distraction, you guys know I am always there to provide it. But 
That'll do it for today's mini break podcast. Another reason why these mini breaks podcasts are made possible. Our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, who have a editing job to do day in, day out, and they always get the job done. Shout out as well to our friends at Diadem Sports. Go to diademsports.com. Use the promo code CR50, 50% off all of your orders. Go to aerobar.com as well. Use the promo code CRACKED30. You'll get 30% off all of your tennis energy bar needs. That being said, for our wonderful guest, our friends, uh, I should say, Austin Rapp, and our friends at My Tennis HQ, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.